We'll be reading the entirety of Psalm 95. O come, let us sing unto the Lord. Let us make a joyful noise to the rock of our salvation. Let us come before his presence with thanksgiving and make a joyful noise unto him with psalms. For the Lord is a great God and a great king above all gods. In his hand are the deep places of the earth. The strength of the hills is his also. The sea is his and he made it and his hands formed the dry land. O come, let us worship and bow down. Let us kneel before the Lord our Maker. For he is our God, and we are the people of his pasture, and the sheep of his hand. Today, if ye will hear his voice, harden not your heart, as in the provocation, and as in the day of temptation in the wilderness. When your fathers tempted me, proved me, and saw my work, forty years long was I grieved with this generation, and said, It is my... It is a people that do err in their heart, and they have not known my ways, unto whom I swear in my wrath that they should not enter into my rest. May be seated. Good morning. morning. While I'm finding my place, I'll, I'll try to talk at the same time. I just let you know that this is a, a psalm that the Lord seemed to cause to stand out to me several weeks back. Um, and it was really, really before uh, I was aware of all that would develop and, and that I would notice. Uh, I know that always happens somewhat, but it seemed to be especially so this time. And I'm thankful to the Lord for that, because he's, he has good purposes in everything that he does. So, I'm going to start out with uh, something that happened this week that was uh, really, even when it happened, it didn't occur to me, uh, really didn't occur to me till me just till yesterday, I think, as I was replaying the scene back in my mind. My wife and I were uh, out and about. I was driving, uh, have been enjoying driving uh, my car. Only recently did I, I get to the point where I could start doing that. So thankful for my need to progress to that point. But that causes me to do a few things differently so that I don't have the clutch pushed in for you know, significant periods of time. I just kind of get in and get out. So that caused me to drive a little differently when I'm slowing down. I just drop it in neutral. So that happened in this one particular intersection. As we got closer, we've, we could see that there had been an accident. So I was focusing on the accident, we both were, and uh, noticed that there was, as we got closer, there was a policeman there uh, directing traffic. So uh, I'd already slowed down quite a bit and was just kind of coasting. And uh, I'll I'll try to somewhat mimic his uh, signals as he's standing here and I'm kind of rather slowly approaching the intersection. And 
I, I finally notice that he's, he's doing one of these things. It was a four-way stop. So I hadn't noticed that at first. I was just kind of slowing down, preparing to stop. And then I realized he's waving me through. He's wanting to keep traffic going while holding up the other traffic on the side. So meanwhile, I've already slipped it into neutral. So I'm fiddling around trying to get in the gear because my car likes to follow a certain pattern. That's the downside of the change that I implemented. So as I was coming along there, his, his uh, motions like this changed to more like... <laughs> so a little, little more uh, forceful, a uh, little countenance uh, mix in there. So, <clears throat> I was imagining that uh, he was thinking something like, come on, let's go. Let's get it in gear. Of course, that was exactly what I was trying to do then. <laughs> get it in gear. <laughs> so, I, so I could get moving again. So, I did make it through before he uh, stepped it up any further. But today, or I mean yesterday, as I was thinking about this, kind of replaying this, I was reprimanded. The policeman didn't reprimand me, but I was reprimanded by the Lord. As I realized in studying this text, how that I had been uh, slack and just allowed myself to very slowly creep, drift to... Uh, more, you know, uh, one man's uh, lethargies and another man's reservedness, maybe. But the effect was I was less exuberant, loved the Lord, loved to sing, but the Lord woke me up to a you know, from, from this point to that point, I saw what a difference had been made. Well, this, uh, this psalm, the very first verse, begins a call to corporate praise. And the, the O come there, it's not somber. It's not an appeal like, please come. It's more like, come on, let's go. Only not, not the attitude that the policeman probably had. There's no irritation there. It was excitement to go to the house of the Lord. That's the sense more so. And you, you might notice at verse 6, there's an O come. That's different. And we'll get to that, Lord willing. But it starts out with, come on, let's go. Not a hurry up, but an excitement. We get to do this. So, I was reprimanded. I was convicted with this. And I thank him for that. 
I want to follow the Holy Spirit's lead here. Because that's who wrote this. So as we look at verses 1 and 2 a little further. So I said, it's not an irritated giddling gear. It's just exuberance. Come on, let's go. We get to do this together. Let's sing to the Lord. He has saved us. Let's shout joyfully to the rock of our salvation. And verse 2 continues this call to corporate worship. And the exuberance continues. Now, I, I seriously doubt if it happened this way that I'm going to imagine out loud for you. But I just imagine for a moment that, that David, uh, who wrote this psalm, uh, that after blurting out, let's shout joyfully to the rock of our, our, our salvation, that just let's say he suddenly remembered, oh yeah, there's a, there's a protocol here. Let's see. We need to enter his gates with thanksgiving and into his courts with praise. We need to be thankful unto him and bless his name. After all, the Lord is good and his mercy is everlasting. Do you think that verse 2 was written in that mood? Do you think that when David started with his call, do you think that sounded like that? No. No, there wasn't protocol. It wasn't sung that way as they entered the house of the Lord together. Now, my translation, which here happens to be uh, New King James Version, I think they missed it here in the punctuation. I have one exclamation point with the first line. I don't think so. I think every line in at least the first two verses would have an exclamation mark. David continued with the same exuberance. Let's come before his presence with thanksgiving. Come on, let's go. Let's shout joyfully to him with psalms. Notice it says, come before his presence with thanksgiving. Come with thanksgiving. In other words, bring it with you. But it's not a thing to bring. It's a hard attitude we ought to have when we come. Thanksgiving is not something to be worked up or put on once we get here. We should neither put on an act to draw attention to ourselves, nor carefully control ourselves to avoid embarrassment by our own standards. Our thanksgiving is to be real, coming from a heart that is sincere and deeply grateful for all God has done. Psalm 103, verse 2 says, Bless the Lord, O my soul, and forget not all his benefits. There may be times when some immediate circumstances have brought you down a notch or two. 
We all experience that. I've certainly experienced it. I've even experienced it today. It might sometimes be a sacrifice for us. But the scriptures would tell us to go ahead and offer that sacrifice. Hebrews 13, verse 15. Therefore, by him, let us continually offer the sacrifice of praise to God, that is, the fruit of our lips, giving thanks to his name. The Lord graciously gives us psalms, like Psalm 95, to help us. The Holy Spirit, through his word, says, come on, let's go. If there is a fountain of living water springing up, if we haven't plugged it, it won't take much priming for thanksgiving and praise to bubble up and over. and may even spill over on a brother or sister that needs an extra share. When we come together before his presence with thankful hearts and fruitful lips, then joyful singing, the next line, is sure to follow. And it's the will of God. Ephesians 5, verse 17 through 20. Therefore do not be unwise, but understand what the will of the Lord is. And do not be drunk with wine which is dissipation, but be filled with the Spirit, speaking to one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody in your heart to the Lord, giving thanks always for all things to God the Father in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. Then in verses 3 through 5, they tell us several things about the Lord to consider, encouraging us to be not only thankful, but also mindful of His greatness. These words about who the Lord is and His authority and power are intended to lead us to humble praise as we see ourselves in light of God. We see His greatness his majesty, his sovereignty over all. Verse 3, For the Lord is the great God and the great King above all gods. He is the one true God, the almighty King of the universe. Verse 4, In his hand are the deep places of the earth. The heights of the hills are, are his also. Yes, at his word... Deep places of the earth boil. Volcanoes erupt. One mountaintop is leveled, while another remains shrouded in cloudy mystery. And we don't know why. And we don't know when. The sea is his, for he made it. And his hands formed the dry land. He made the Red Sea, in fact, And he stopped and restarted its flow at will. And from the dust of the dry land that he created, his hands formed man. And he breathed into man's nostrils the breath of life, and man became a living being. The Lord is the great God, the great King, and the great Creator. He is worthy of all praise. He made it all, and it is all His. The psalm reminds us that. It also reminds us that 
we are his. He made us and he made us special after his image. So now we get to verse 6. And verse 6 begins with a call to corporate worship. In one sense, we would say that our coming together, singing praises to him is part of our worship. Yes, but we're going to also look at the meaning of the text as the words are different, and there is definitely a a different sense here. Because it starts out, O come. And now this is more like our, our more familiar, O come. It's come. Come with me. Let's, let's approach God together in humble submission to him and worship of him with our bodies and with our, our souls in keeping. His words call us to recognize the Lord as our maker. O come, let us worship and bow down. Let us kneel before the Lord, our maker, and to worship him with our whole being, not just the position of the body, but a yieldedness, and devotion of heart that corresponds. Bowing down in humility before a great God and kneeling before him in readiness to serve our maker. We are his. It is he who has made us and not we ourselves. Verse 7 then draws us into considering the preciousness of relationship with him. For he is our God. And we are the people of his pasture and the sheep of his hand. Not only are we his, but he is ours. What a precious truth. The great God, sovereign king of the universe, has loved us and chosen us. Jesus Christ, the good shepherd, laid down his life for us, his sheep. He made us his people, the sheep of his hand. He is our shepherd. We are His. He saved us. He purchased us by His own blood. He not only made us, He then purchased us. After we gave away our birthright, essentially. Christ Jesus is the rock of our salvation that verse 1 extols. And these are rock-solid truths that are precious to us. Truths that we can rely on. Truths that we love to think about. And praise the Lord for. So why then did David, the psalmist, have to ruin this beautiful and worshipful psalm? By abruptly switching to the painful history of the generation of Hebrews that were laid waste in the wilderness because of their hardness of heart. And then why did the psalm have to end on such a harsh note? Why could it have not recovered? Came back with one of his familiar, praise the Lord. Instead, it ends with God taking an oath that they would never enter his rest. It ends without a decent resolve. We're just left hanging. I'm sure you've noticed that. You probably noticed it 
when it was read a half hour ago, didn't you? It, it, uh, it makes itself known. So to rephrase the main question, why the abrupt change from talking about worship to talking about the generation that did not enter the promised land? That's the why. Well, here's the because. Because God loves his people enough to warn them about dangers to their souls. We are God's people, the sheep of his pasture. He loves us and he is warning us. We cannot separate hearing and obeying from worship. That's one of the lessons here. And the Lord has chosen by his spirit in this psalm to make it so abrupt to get our attention. That's his intention, to get our attention. From the very beginning, in terms of faith, we go to Abraham, the father of the faith. Genesis 22, I believe it is, that Abraham says to his young men after they've traveled, he's heard from God, God has, has required of him without explanation to take his son, go take a long trip, travel, days, many days journey, into a mountain that he will then show him somewhere and sacrifice him as a burnt offering. As he says, Isaac, your, your only son, Isaac, the one you love, makes a point of it. And so when they get there, Abraham says to his young men, stay here with the donkey. The lad and I will go yonder and worship. And we will come back to you. Several verses later, passage that account ends with God saying in your seed all the nations of the earth shall be blessed because you have obeyed my voice right there in this really key passage where the most clearly identifiable shadowing of God giving his only son and not staying his own hand And he ties together worship and obedience. And James 2, verses 21 and 22, confirms this vital connection. Was not Abraham our father justified by works when he offered Isaac his son on the altar? Do you see that faith was working together with his works? And by works faith was made perfect, complete, mature. What do trials do for us? Just even in general. Strengthens our faith. Abraham's faith was strengthened. And that's what the word says. Romans 4, 20 to 24. He did not waver at the promise of God through unbelief, but was strengthened in faith, giving glory to God. And being fully convinced that what he had promised, he was able also to perform. And therefore... 
it was accounted to him for righteousness. Now it was not written for his sake alone that it was imputed to him, but for also for us. It shall be imputed to us who believe in him who raised up Jesus our Lord from the dead. Yes, and we too must show our, by our, our own obedience that our faith is alive. Just as Abraham is held up in terms of his faith of believing God, it's also held up in, and confirmed in James 2 that that applies to us as well. I found it interesting as well that in verse 7, <clears throat> when, when there's this breakover from is our God, we are the people of his pasture, the sheep of his hand. Then today, if you will hear his voice, those that were, uh, whenever this happened, a long time ago, assigning verse numbers, doesn't it seem odd to you as well that they didn't start verse 8 with today? It's this obvious break. I don't know. I don't know what was in somebody's mind, but I suspect that the Holy Spirit might have something to do with that. He does have a lot to do with what we read here. He links them even in our Bibles together as one verse. Since we are the sheep of his, of his hand, the people of his pasture... Since he is our shepherd, Jesus says, My sheep know my voice, and they follow me. So then, today, if you will hear his voice, do not harden your hearts, as in the rebellion, as in the day of trial in the wilderness, when your fathers tested me. They tried me, though they saw my work. For forty years I was grieved with that generation, and I said, it is a people who go astray in their hearts, and they do not know my ways. Grieved. Wrathful as well, as we find out, but first, grieved. If you can imagine, it's, it's, I know it's hard for us because we're not God, and we know that we're not faithful like he is. And we know, we definitely know, that we're not all-powerful and all-wise and all-knowing. But try to imagine, just if you can maybe go through your, your own self-analysis of, of, uh, of uh, your best qualities somehow, See if you could find one that you think, boy, I, you know, I really do have worked on this and I'm, I'm really consistent on this. I'm trustworthy on this item. How does it feel when someone who has seen you exhibit that trustworthiness for a long time 
in a lot of situations. But they don't trust you. God was grieved. How could he possibly? He never fails. And he not only never fails, he did a lot for them. Caring for them almost like little children in terms of the the special things he did. First thing that happens is they cross the Red Sea in quite a miraculous way. And then watch those that were chasing them, ready to overtake them drown. Watch God knock the wheels off the chariots. It's quite a sight. And you know what they did? (laughs) They got happy. They made up a song on the spot. Danced and sang right there on the seashore. And then not too many hours or days later Bitterly complaining. And there it was. There's the cycle. Water from the rock. Bread from heaven. Meat. You name it. So finally. Finally. God says, so I swore in my wrath... They shall not enter my rest. I got to wonder, when David penned this Psalm 95, he must have looked at what he had written and wondered why. You realize that happens. Uh, 1 Peter 1, 10 to 12 says, Of this salvation the prophets have inquired and searched carefully, the ones who prophesied of the grace that would come to you. Searching what or what manner of time the Spirit of Christ who was in them was indicating when he testified beforehand the sufferings of Christ and the glories that would follow. To them it was revealed that not to themselves but to us they were ministering to things which now have been reported to you through those who have preached the gospel to you by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven. Things which angels desired to look into. So they had, they had the sense of that the Lord was doing this. The Lord was saying something. But it wasn't clear that it was, it was still held back and, and they were searching and wondering. This must have happened to David on this. Just wondering, what, what is this about? I mean, he, he knew the story. But surely he looked at the psalm and think, wow, this started like a great rousing you know, praise psalm. And then it hit the ground. This Psalm 95 had only dim light at the time. But it was given new covenant meaning when the Holy Spirit gave further revelation to the writer of the letter of Hebrews. And that's what we want to look at for a while. There are several references to this very uh, scripture that's quoted here today. If you will hear his voice, do not harden your heart, and so on. We start out in in chapter 1. God, who at various times and various ways spoke in time past to the fathers by the prophets. 
He has in these last days spoken to us by his Son, whom he appointed heir of all things, through whom also he made the worlds, who being the brightness of his glory and the express image of his person, and upholding all things by the word of his power, when he had by himself purged our sins, sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. So we're we're building toward, the, the writer is building toward something. His starting point is Jesus Christ. That has to be our starting point all the time. Start, middle, and end. It's all about Christ. And in Hebrews chapter 2, Therefore, we must give more earnest heed to the things we have heard. Today, if you hear his voice, keep hearing that phrase. Give more earnest heed to the things we have heard, lest we drift away. He's writing to believers. For if the word spoken through angels proved steadfast, and every transgression and disobedience received a just reward, how shall we escape if we neglect, if we neglect so great a salvation, which at the first began to be spoken by the Lord and was confirmed to us by those who heard him? God also bearing witness, both with signs and wonders, with various miracles, the gifts of the Holy Spirit, according to his own will. Can we liken what was just described there. And imagine, we've just covered Acts. A lot happened there. Continual signs and wonders. Various miracles. According to the will of God. Making His, his will known. Making His power known. Making His faithfulness known. Like He did with that generation of Hebrews that he took across the Red Sea. Notice the phrase that says that every transgression and disobedience received a just reward. God is a rewarder of those who diligently seek him. He's also a rewarder of those who transgress and disobey. He is a just God. Thank God that Jesus took our sins. But don't miss the fact that This letter is written to believers that they've been under trial, they're kind of discouraged. Evidently, the writer is concerned. That they would neglect, that they would back off, that would become lethargic or reserved. Romans three twenty three through 26 says, For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And that context is Jew and Gentile. All of us. But we're justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. This was to show God's righteousness because in his divine forbearance he had passed over former sins. And it was to show his righteousness at the present time that this was written, so that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. God is indeed just 
and he is a justifier. And yet, we continue to hear warnings as the letter builds, likening, contrasting Christ and Moses in chapter 3, verse 5. And Moses indeed was faithful in all his house as a servant for a testimony of those things which would be spoken afterward. But Christ as a son over his own house, whose house we are, if we hold fast the confidence and the rejoicing of the hope firm to the end. To the end. He that endures to the end shall be saved. The mouth of the Lord. Therefore, as the Holy Spirit says, today, if you will hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as in the rebellion in the day of trial in the wilderness where your fathers tested me, tried me, and saw my works 40 years. Therefore, I was angry with that generation and said, they always go astray in their heart and they have not known my ways. So I swore in my wrath, they shall not enter my rest. Beware, brethren, lest there be in any of you an evil heart of unbelief in departing from the living God. But exhort one another daily while it is called today, lest any of you be hardened through the deceitfulness of sin. Right there is a key. How do hearts get hardened? Very seldom does somebody say, I'm I'm just going to harden my heart. I've just decided I'm going to harden my heart. No. We'd like to think we're that much in control. No. Sin is deceitful. And we're open to its deceit when we don't hear the Lord speaking. And He speaks all the time. Because he loves us and is faithful. The basis for our exhorting one another daily, while it's called today, is the same word. For we have become partakers of Christ if we hold the beginning of our confidence steadfast to the end. There it is again. He's got this theme, right? You hear the recurring today. If you hear his voice, your heart and mind and your conscience. And then, steadfast to the end. Stay with it. Stay alert. You hear Paul talking about armor. And again, he, he refrain again, steadfast to the end. While it is said, today, if you will hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as in the rebellion. So how do we harden our hearts? Do you think that the people just decided that they're just going to ignore, just forget, just purpose to not pay attention and think about all that God has done? I doubt it. Sometimes it might seem that way when we read the account. No, there's just seed of sin in there. They let it happen. They let down. That's why there's these warnings here. Hebrews 4. Therefore, since a promise remains of entering his rest, ah, 
this he's been building to is putting New Testament, New Covenant meaning to this rest. Since a promise remains of entering his rest, let us fear lest any of you seem to have come short of it. For indeed the gospel was preached to us as well as to them. But the word which they heard, still speaking of the generation of Hebrews, the word which they heard did not profit them, not being mixed with faith in those who heard. For we who have believed do enter that rest. And as he has said, so I swore in my wrath, they shall not enter my rest, although the works were finished from the foundation of the world. Now this is, this is a... Uh, challenging thought for us. But just keep in mind that what God knows, God knows. But our experience here is lived out daily with our own thoughts and our own struggle, either alert or not, against the deceitfulness of sin. And this letter is saying, it matters. It matters. one who would have a high level of self-confidence would be prime target because of the deceitfulness of sin. There remains, therefore, skipping down to verse 9 in chapter 4, there remains, therefore, a rest for the people of God. For he who has entered his rest has himself also ceased from his works as God did from his Let us therefore be diligent to enter that rest, lest anyone fall according to the same example of disobedience. Now, this this discussion of this rest, that remains therefore a rest for the people of God. There's there's more than one aspect of this, and it's not not that complicated, because it's the same for salvation. We, We come to the Lord, we, you know, we, through His miraculous work in our lives, the lights come on. <laughs> and and we're, we're awakened and we're inspired to put our trust in Him. But that's not the end. Now we're alive in Him. And now we need to grow. We start out with the pure milk of the Word that we may grow thereby. And we continue on. The desire is maturity, health, and and fruit-bearing maturity. So there is a rest, part of this rest is associated with that. How do we enter that rest? And, and And it says right here, He who has entered his rest has himself also ceased from his works as God did from his. There's a sense in which we understand that when we come to Christ, we, we, we acknowledge that he did it all. His work is totally sufficient. It's complete. We can't add anything to it. I think we got that. What about daily living? Because this is what the writer of Hebrews is pushing and, and exhorting Strongly, He has a reason for it. He has the sense that there are some that are about to give up 
or some that are about to just, from lack of work, work not depending on our work instead of his, but entering into the rest of God and trusting and walking in the spirit. Walking in the spirit versus walking in the flesh makes a difference in our lives, makes a difference in our maturity, makes a difference in the glory to God, and it makes a difference. This is the warning. It makes a difference. It could make a difference in whether you endure to the end. Because, in fact, we don't know until we get there. I'm not talking about not knowing and living in fear rather than confidence in, in Christ's completed work. But I do mean it in the sense that what's open before us here today. Else, why the strong admonitions? Why the exhortation? Why the wording of lest any of you seem to have come short? And I want to just mention in passing, I don't want to, I don't want to add time here, but I want to just mention the, this this passage, if you want to just jot it down and check it later. Second Peter chapter 1. If you read through there, you get, a, you get a picture of someone, it's talking about fruit bearing, okay, maturity. Somebody that's barren. And there's wording there that gives us indication that one who is bearing fruit is said to have an abundant entrance into the kingdom of God. Well, the obvious implication is, and it's pretty pretty plain when you read it, uh, what about the guy that is barren? When a guy is barren, he has no fruit in his life. He just looks and he looks, you know, he's still a babe in terms of the scriptures. Practically speaking, is he saved or not? Do we know? Now, a companion question I want to pose to you. If someone is bearing fruit, do you know? Yes. That's the point. The whole letter of 1 John is that we may know. And many of the other letters are inspiring us to recognize this. I want you to see the connection with that. Though it may be a little uncomfortable to think about it. But this is what this exhortation is about. Don't be in a position where you're lagging behind. Don't be in a position where you don't know or somebody else doesn't know. Because it also means you're not bringing glory to God. Shouldn't that make a difference? So, some of those things are hard to say, but they're here. And you know, we've just finished Acts in verse 20, uh, in chapter 28, the latter verses where Paul speaks to the Jewish leaders. And there's some of this at issue where they have hard hearts. And nationally you see that, but some are believing and some are disbelieving. I just want to point to, from the from time of, of Christ, and some, some verses here that would give at least a snapshot of this, of the hardening. This is an example of hardening, how that happens. And there are many things that, that come before this verse, and there are many that come after the last one I read, because we just went through Acts. It's full of them. But I'm just going to look at one kind of 
midpoint in Jesus' ministry and at the end. John 10, 24. Then the Jews surrounded him and said to him, How long do you keep us in doubt? If you are the Christ, tell us plainly. This is John 10. Okay, he's been at this for a while. It's plain. And his words have been plain. And he responds there, I've already told you. And you don't believe. John 12, verse 37 to 40. It's kind of like a, a conclusion. It's kind of a closing the, a chapter. A sad ending. But although he had done so many signs before them, they did not believe in him. That the word of Isaiah the prophet might be fulfilled, which he spoke. Lord, who has believed our report, and to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? Therefore they could not believe, because Isaiah said again, He has blinded their eyes and hardened their hearts, lest they should see with their eyes, lest they should understand with their hearts, and turn so that I should heal them. We see again, when you consider the other scriptures that are, that are similar, you see both sides. They hardened their hearts. God hardened their hearts. They closed their eyes. God closed their eyes. But know this. It's not God's desire that any perish. That's been stated clearly. So what this indicates is they turned away. They hardened their hearts. Now how they got there, we may not see all that, but you can be sure it has this element. The deceitfulness of sin that they were not on guard for. They had slowly transitioned from one, for example, Simeon. Think about, it was this old man, and he's on fire in spirit, in in tune with the Holy Spirit. Contrast that with one of your typical Pharisees, Jewish leaders. No, not on fire. They're, They're completely caught up in their political schemes and maintaining their power. How did they get there? At some point, they were excited, probably, you know, and young, idealistic. Probably a lot of them, some of them at least, loved God, it seemed, knew of Him, studied hard. But look where they ended up. How does that happen? Hardening their hearts. And according to this, that happens as a result of today. If you will hear his voice, do not harden your hearts. Do you hear? Jesus said to them multiple times, uh, probably the, the classic is in John 5, where, where he says, you search the scriptures, and I'm there, all over it. But you won't come to me. You think you have eternal life in the scriptures, but you won't come to me author of eternal life. So, picking back up on verse uh, 12 uh, in in, uh, Hebrews 4, where it speaks of the Word of God. For the Word of God is living and powerful and sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing even to the division of soul and spirit and of joints and marrow. And is a discerner of the thoughts and intents of the heart. 
And there is no creature hidden from his sight, but all things are naked and open to the eyes of him to whom we must give an account. We know that the Pharisees, chief priests, scribes, elders, most of them, they, they went on being hardened. You know, at the end, Jesus is hanging on the cross and they say, let him now come down from the cross and we'll believe him. Sure. Is that believable? No. As Stephen said later, shortly before he was stoned, you do always resist the Holy Spirit. They had become very much like that generation across the Red Sea. But let's look at a a contrast of that. Here's an example of softening. When Peter stood and spoke the day of Pentecost, Acts 2, he speaks of, you know, addressing what some of the rumors are, you know, supposition of what's going on here. He says, no, God has spoken about this. Hear God's word. And then he continues on with a very succinct and, and pointed, very pointed, <laughs> difficult to hear. You know, <laughs> things like, you know, whom you crucified. Speaking of Jesus, he has made him both Lord and Christ. This Jesus whom you crucified. But they listened. Very many listened. Here's, and here's the thing. Now when they heard this, this is verse 37 in Acts 2. When they heard this, they were cut to the heart. With what? Peter's words? Or the word of God? Sharper than any two-edged sword piercing even to the division of soul and spirit and of joints and marrow, and is a discerner of the thoughts and intents of the heart. That's what cut. Peter spoke the word of God, and the Holy Spirit, the Spirit of Christ, who is the word of God, did the work. And these men that then cried out, Men and brethren, what shall we do? Soft hearts. They heard, they softened further. And Peter was able to explain what to do. Repent. Let every one of you be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the remission of sins. You shall receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. Christ our Redeemer, who purchased our salvation with his own blood, is also our great high priest, interceding in heaven for us. Interceding that we would not be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. Interceding that when we stumble, that we would come to him, the advocate. 1 John 2, 1. He's interceding for us. He is also the word of God, sharper than any two-edged sword. He is able to cleanse and purify us and make us ready for his return as we keep soft hearts before him.
yielding to his work in our hearts. And he is also our shepherd, leading and caring for us. And he has given us his spirit as a seal and promise. This is Jesus Christ, the Son of God, the rock of our salvation, whom we ought to praise with all our being and worship with all our being. Truly the Lord has given us everything pertaining to life and godliness. May he encourage and strengthen our hearts to thank him, praise him, and worship him, and hear him, and obey him all our days until he returns. May it be that each one here grows to maturity and is able to look forward with great longing for the return of Christ and be ready to be a glory to the Lord and to glory in Him, our Savior and Redeemer. May it be so.